What's up guys? What's up? It's your boy Chase H. I am the host of this amazing podcast entitled The Ape Academy. Alright, today's episode, as you can hear, sounds like it's from the Old West, right? The Texas Rangers, not the baseball team. <laughs> not the baseball team based out of Dallas. We are talking about the old school, hardcore, tobacco spitting, whiskey drinking, Texas Rangers of old. The ones that Sam Houston, the first governor of Texas, specifically formed to protect the frontier against banditos, rogue Mexican soldiers, and Comanches. God bless and sit back. Enjoy. Eight. Buffer would say from the UFC. Welcome back to another episode, guys, of the Ape Academy podcast. I'm your host with the most, Chase H. I am the CEO of Act Protect Engage. Welcome back to the Ape Academy podcast. First things first, we want to thank a few sponsors, as I do every single episode. Bravo Concealment Holsters at Bravo Concealment. They offer the finest inside the waistband, outside the waistband, tactical pouches, tactical mag pouches, tactical belts. All right. For everyday use, though, it doesn't matter if you're a beginner, if you're advanced, law enforcement, whatever, they make it for everybody. Please check them out. Use code APE10, A-P-E-10, at checkout for 10% off. BravoConcealment.com, IG, at BravoConcealment. Okay, also, USCCA, United States Concealed Carry Association, the number one concealed carry, Second Amendment advocacy organization, in the United States, guys. The NRA is old freaking news. They're a bunch of old bogeys. Follow USCCA. Join today. Okay, so. Housekeeping out of the way. Who are we talking about today? We are discussing Captain Jack Hayes. The prototypical Texas Ranger, the most famous Texas Ranger, arguably the godfather of the Texas Rangers, although they were technically created by Sam Houston, which is the first governor of Texas. Also, there's a great university uh, named Sam Houston State. So, as another popular university in the state of Texas, uh, and you know they have a very, very uh, glamorized legacy in the state especially nationwide and I think a lot of people got that from that remember that old Chuck Norris show called Texas <laughs> Walker Texas Ranger 
Remember that? That show was fire. I used to watch it when I was uh when I would come. I think I I watched it when I came home from school in middle school. And you remember how Walker, uh, played by Chuck Norris, of course, would do that like spinning like a uh, heel kick, and they would like replay it like ten times, like put it on loop. And he always went like hand to hand with these dudes, and they always carried like a 1911, like a like a shiny uh, nickel 1911 with like he had that uh, the black sidekick, and they all work. <laughs> <laughs> and they wore and they wore uh, cowboy hats. And remember, there's always like the pretty little like assistant or like the secretary who like, you know what I mean? I don't know if you, I don't know. I'm going on a rant. I don't know if you guys ever seen that show, but it's dope. Check it out. But yeah, that's not really what. That's really not the version of the Rangers that we're gonna be talking about today. These Rangers were even freaking cooler. Well, depending on who you ask, because honestly. In a lot of sense, they were, they have a very bloody, controversial history, um, and we're going to go into that. But depending on who you ask, these versions of the Rangers are even cooler than the Chuck Norris version, even more bad ASS. I cannot curse because remember, guys, I have a clean rating on Apple, and for some reason, I'm obsessed with maintaining that rating. I don't know why. I don't know even how I got the clean rating because I curse more than a freaking texas ranger would <laughs> so all right today's episode is entitled rangers for the common good how the rangers were were constructed to combat the comanche empire okay um so the rangers were formed to fight indians Bandits and Mexicans. And no, I'm not President Donald J. Trump. I'm not trying to label a group of people. I love all people. I love and hate them all equally. So I'm not racist. What I mean by Mexicans is back then, Texas wasn't part of the United States. Remember, guys. Um, now, uh, if you need more information on Texas independence, just uh is everywhere man i live in texas um my wife is was born well, well he, she was born in oklahoma but she spent 40 years in texas you know she's a texan my son was born in texas my kids are texans trust me i know a lot about the history of texas because <laughs> they teach it actually teach it in high school the kids are required to not only do the what start uh the national was it uh what do you call it the pledge of allegiance the pledge of allegiance and they also are required to to recite the Texas state anthem. Um, and they also have to take a Texas history class in high school. So everyone in Texas, I, I think that's why people in Texas are so cocky. You know what I mean? Like they all have such a strong history and they're the Lone Star State. And that's for a reason. But so anyway, I'm, I'm going off on a rant on a rant again. So uh, they were formed to fight bandits. Actually, let me put it in order. Mexicans, Indians, and bandits, okay? Because remember, Mexico did not want to give up Texas. They really didn't. Uh, it was part of their empire for a long time, their territory. And a bunch of upstart, hard-headed, arrogant, rough you know, Texans wanted their independence and they fought really hard. They suffered a couple massive L's 
um, all, including the the loss at the Alamo. Everyone knows the Alamo, located in San Antonio, Santa Ana, and it marched, uh, I don't know what, 2,000 soldiers of the uh, Mexican army, slaughtered around 200 Texan defenders. Um, and, you know, remember the Alamo is the famous cry, if you guys ever heard that before. Um, they slaughtered all of them. They gave no quarter. The Mexican army was notorious for giving no quarter. What that means is they did not take prisoners. So if you were captured, you were shot instantly, executed immediately. So what happened was the Texans had to fight to the death pretty much in every single battle that they fought. And that made them very, very hard men. Okay, pause. So even the Rangers, when the Rangers were formed, they were used to it. They were used to fighting with no quarter. So when they fought the Indians, the Indians didn't give quarter. The Indians didn't even have a word in their language for surrender. It did not exist in the Comanche language. The Mexicans didn't give quarter. And bandits, well, bandits, if they captured you, they would either kill you slowly or sell you into slavery. So it was either win or die on the Texas frontier. So that is why um, the Rangers are so crucial. That's what they represented, that hard-nosed Texas toughness, okay, and, and ferocity in battle. Um, I wish the Houston Texans football team had the same type of <laughs> uh, fierceness in battle, but they stink. So maybe next year. All right, guys. So first things first, we're going to talk about the formation of the Rangers. Um, technically, they were formed in 1823, but uh, they didn't really do much back then. So we're, we're going to start them off in around the 1840s. Okay, that's where we're going to start. And I have... Two sources, right? Two main sources for this episode. Uh, the story of Texas.com, which is uh, the Bullock Museum, which is a local Texas museum, and they chronicle the history of the Rangers, Texas history, a lot of local history. Okay. And also, my favorite book on the West so far S.C. Gwynn's The Empire of the Summer Moon. Also, recently I've been reading, or actually I've been listening to, I've been getting into, uh, Audiobooks. Do any of you guys listen to audiobooks? I guess because I'm getting older. I'm almost 40 now. So, and also what I've noticed is I, I do so much during the day. It's really difficult to like find time to park my butt down in one place and read for even like 20 minutes straight. So what I tend to like to do is listen to, to everything. So I got this great book by Bill O'Reilly. It's called killing crazy horse and it does a great job of chronicling the indian wars just as a really really great descriptive overall chronicling you know chronicling is that a word chronicle of the indian wars and kind of the interaction between american society white settlers and the native people and how they interacted how they fought how they compromised how they broke treaties you know how atrocities were committed um, on both sides, how the Indians were, were were ripped from their lands. It's a really, really good, unbiased history so far. Um, I think I'm about halfway through. It's really, really interesting. And I actually really enjoy audiobooks. So I actually, I recommend Audible if you're old like me and you don't have time to read. All right, I'm going off on rants. So let's start off from S.C. Gwen's book, The Empire of the Summer Moon. Okay, and I'm going to read from it. Because that is what I do. I read from stuff. 
Alright. So let's talk about why the Comanches were so freaking powerful and why they were so unstoppable. We're gonna get into that right now. This is a direct quote. Quote Comanche power had long resided in sheer military superiority. The ability, man for man, to outride and outshoot the Anglo-Europeans. This had been true from the earliest days of Spanish rule. Now, for the first time, came a serious challenge. It came in the form of dirty, bearded, violent, and undisciplined men wearing buckskins, coonskin caps, sombreros, and other odd bits of clothing who belonged to no army. They wore no insignias or uniforms, made cold camps on the prairie, and were only intermittently paid. They owed their existence, their very existence, guys, to the Comanche threat. Their methods, copied closely from the Comanches, would change frontier warfare in North America. That is a direct quote from the book Empire of the Summer Moon. They were created to combat Indians, specifically Comanches, because the Comanches were everywhere and they were terrorizing the Texas frontier. And when I mean terrorizing, what I mean is I kind of went into it in the uh, in the previous podcast. It's hard for us to wrap our our modern kind of um our modern cushioned American minds, a lot of us Americans. Shout out to all my international folks in France and in the Netherlands who are tuning in. Thank you so much, guys, for listening. Um, us as Westerners, let's just say, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around how vast and how lonely and how away from civilization this land was back then because nothing was really settled until the gold rush, which we're going to talk about today. Before that, it was all empty, vast Indian country. So if you are a settler out there, you are by your freaking self. Okay. The Texas Rangers, their history spans around 200 years. All right. So what they did was they patrolled the frontier. They fought in military battles. They hunted Indians. They, and they arrested cattle rustlers and bandits, all right? There are many, many stories, right? There are stories, I mean, there's tall tales. When I mean tall, I mean tall, tall tales of heroic bravery. But you have to understand, many, there are many, many moments. And this is what I want to talk about. I want to talk about both sides of the coin, where we really need to step back and challenge the popular image of the wholesome ranger as the noble outlaw, I mean the noble lawman, I'm sorry, who hunted outlaws. They protected settlers, they enforced laws, but they also executed criminals without trial. They didn't have to have a trial. They, If they didn't like you, they'd be like, take him outside. Oh yeah, he stole a cow. Bang, you're dead. And what, No one can do anything about it. They didn't have to, it wasn't like nowadays where you, have to, you have to do your paperwork, you have to record everything. You have a body cam. You got to take them, put them, put them in the back of a, let's say, a back of a horse and ride them to the courthouse in handcuffs. No, you got hung on the spot or shot on the spot. No trial. 
There were judge, jury, and executioner. They murdered and hunted thousands of, of uh, North American Indians, including the Comanche, drove them off their lands, fought them, chased them nearly to extermination. Um, and they even lynched innocent Mexicans and Mexican-Americans along the Texas-Mexico border. Um, there's actually, um, recently I saw a news article in, on ABC 13. Uh, they did a piece on it. Um, it's really sad. And, but that's a whole different story, and we can spend a whole podcast on that as well. But we just need to remember that history isn't black and white, and that's one of the things I love about history. It's, it's alive. It's vibrant. And there's a lot of different uh, you know, sides of the story and they kind of are all true in different in different aspects and you blend them together to kind of put this this uh, patchwork of facts and events and you try to weave a tale. That's what makes history so interesting and that's kind of like why I wanted why I'm doing this podcast and why I keep uh, pressing on. Like I want people to understand how interesting history is and it kind of dictates everything we do today. So um, just Keep hanging in there, guys. Keep hanging in there with me. All right, so um, that's kind of what overall they did. But really what was the pivotal moment was when Mexico beat the brakes off of, I mean, I'm sorry, America beat the brakes off of Mexico in the Mexico-American War, okay, in the 1840s. They beat the brakes off of Mexico. Mexico was not ready for that. Um, and they signed a treaty called a Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. Guadalupe Hidalgo. Um, you figure I'll be able to pronounce these Spanish words better consider, considering I've been living in Texas since, what, 2011? But Guadalupe Hidalgo, all right, it was signed on February 2nd, 1848, after the lopsided American victory against Mexico in the Mexican-American War, right? In the treaty... America was granted 1.2 million, with an M, million square miles of real estate. An instant 66% increase in total land mass. Can you imagine that? Just, just imagine, all of a sudden, like, you woke up, you bought a house, and uh, the next day, the real, realtor came over and was like, hey, think, since you did such a great job on this deal, and you've been working so hard at your job. Here's a, here's another four houses. You know what I mean? Like here's another like two and a half houses. Whatever the math is, all you math nerds do it. Basically, it it was as if France acquired Germany overnight. That's how that's how big of a land deal that was. Okay, so today France is just France. Tomorrow, Germany is now part of France. All right, so that's a lot of land. Um. And a lot of that land is unoccupied by whites, meaning that it's occupied by indigenous tribes. Um, and that means that it's unexplored. It is mysterious. Okay? So it's wide open for the taken. And well, in Americanized. At the time of the Mexican War uh, the at the time of the Mexican War, the world beyond the ninety eighth meridian, right, which is basically what the U.S. acquired was still a mysterious, dangerous, untraveled land. The land stretched from Canada to South Texas and had never been explored by any whites. No white man 
other than people who were like on the Oregon Trail who were just passing straight through and they were in and out there and then they were gone. No white man had ever really explored those areas before. Okay. Nobody. Because it was like, why? Like, why? You know, it was owned by Mexico, first of all. Second of all, why? Like, why do we need to go out there? We don't know. We don't know what's out there. But once it became part of the U.S., people were like, hmm, I don't know, man. It looks pretty interesting. Maybe we can flee our old life or maybe we're running from the law. Maybe we, we're broke. We're broke in Philadelphia and we need, we need a, um, a little pick-me-up, a little change in fortune. Let's go out to the Texas Territory, get some land, buy some cows, some longhorns, start a new life. Who knows? Maybe it'll work out. All right. So that was really, really important for a lot of people. Uh, so until the late 1840s, Texas was still the only part of civilized America that was in range of any horse tribe. So basically, Texas was was the closest the Plains Indians could get really to like the main American settlements. All right. Um, there were, you know, the settlements to the east were out of range. They were out of range for the Indians, and they couldn't reach them. But they could reach Texas. So the settlers that came into Texas were in danger. The Comanches did not want them there. They understood with dealing with the Spanish that settlers in their territory was not a good sign. So that was really important. That's a really important fact to understand. The Comanches were aware of what was going on, right? They weren't like, oh, what happened? These people just popped up. They, they saw, they watched. They watched the Mexicans retreat from afar, obviously. All right. In 1849, the floodgates opened. The gold rush sent thousands of white settlers westward. This was, only, this was only one of many growing concerns for the Plains tribes, specifically the Comanche, because we're talking about them romping around Comanche country. There's a lot more concerns. Once, once someone found gold, the Comanches were in trouble. It was the beginning of the end. All right, because when those minerals, when that gold was found, that means that a ton of people, a ton of wagons, a ton of settlers, uh, trains, railroads were starting to be built. Camps were starting to sprout up. Little towns turned into big cities. With these changes, right, that brought upon by the gold rush, a new challenge to the Comanche's military might came in the middle of the 1840s, and they called themselves the Texas Rangers. Mmm... Ranger companies. Oh, boy. So we kind of see, like, the trend here, right? So what happens is, let me do a brief timeline I just went over real quick. Boom. Okay. So America beats Mexico. They take their land. Uh, Mexico uh, annexes it to the U.S. Eh, not a huge deal for the natives, right? Still no white people out here. It's even better for them because now they don't have to worry about uh, Mexican soldiers patrolling around their area, right? Okay, great. Mexicans are gone. 
hold on. Some person, some some Joe Smo finds gold. Gold's discovered. Oh boy. Now here comes the march of civilization. Cause once the gold was found, it was like it was like someone turned on a fire hose. All right. From there, white settlers started pouring in. They wanted to change their fortunes, right? And as everyone knows, right? Anyone who knows anything about economics knows that, right? Supply and demand go up. Things change. <laughs> okay, so with these settlers, you know, came the railroad, came technology, came settlements, farms, towns. People were changing the land. The Postal Service, the Pony Express uh, was formed. Mining companies. All right, so I'm not going to go on too much of a rant, but that's pretty much the general uh, trend that we're going, the direction we're going in with that. All right, Sovereign Texas, okay? So after the war, right, after America beat the brakes off of Mexico, Texas figured, okay, so America just won. <laughs> we're all right. So um, America just won. We're good. We've been kind of semi-independent for a little while now, because what happened was the Texans had a revolution, had a rebellion. They didn't quite beat the brakes off of Mexico, but they beat Mexico, and but they never were declared truly victorious. Like Mexico was never like, all right, Texas, you are now independent. Go now, go, my child, and do your own thing. No, right? Mexico was like, F that. You, you might have beat us. You guys got lucky, though. You know what I mean? It was like, <laughs> it's like you didn't really beat us. I mean, come on, you cheated. So Mexico still considered Texas like outlaw, like an outlaw province. So even though Texas, there were no Mexicans, um, Mexican army units stationed in Texas, the Mexicans will still raid. They occupied San Antonio twice during that time period. The, the um, in 1836 alone, <laughs> they occupied San Antonio twice. All right. So Texas was never supposed to be an independent country, but it ended up being an independent country. After defeating the Mexican army, most Texans believed that their territory would be immediately annexed by the U.S. Almost all Texans wanted statehood. There were a few that. Wanted a Texas empire, like a Texas have its own kingdom, but those were like rare. Most people wanted to be part of the U.S. However, there are two main reasons why this could not happen at that time. And this is before the Mexican-American War. So, I kind of bounced around. But basically, when the U.S. beat, beat Mexico, Texas had already kind of won against Mexico, like I said, in, in a little little skirmishes and small battles. So when America beat Mexico, they got all their territory. But right before Mexico beat America, Texas was 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 struggling by itself. There's a period where Texas was all by itself. Okay, and that's what I'm talking about right now. We had to set the stage a little bit and kind of get the general historical sense. But in this same time frame, so it's not a whole lot of time, right? Um uh, you know, in the 1830s, Texas was still battling with Mexico. Okay, remember, Texas had been part of Mexico. It was a territory of Mexico. When Texas beat Mexico, they drove the Mexicans out, but they technically weren't independent yet. So, 
all right, with the Treaty of uh, Guadalupe Hidalgo, now America gained all of their territories, okay? But this was much at this was a few years after, okay, what we're talking about right now. Make sense? Not really. All right. So, right after the Texans whooped Santa Ana, they wanted statehood. But there are two main reasons why this did not happen. One, Mexico never never formally recognized the independence of the renegade province. All right. So remember, this was before the Mexican-American War. So if the U.S. annexed Texas, it risked war with Mexico, which obviously it would later do anyway. But at that moment, they weren't ready. Okay. At the time, which was 1836, the U.S. was not prepared to fight Mexico. They wouldn't fight them until a few years later. Two, it could not afford to admit another slave territory at that time. So remember, there was a big debate in Congress, in the Senate, about the balance of power, right? The number of slave states versus the number of free states. And Texas was trying to get annexed by the U.S., but as a slave, as a slave territory. A lot of people in the government did not see it as the right time to admit another slave state in. There's a very, very delicate balance in the Senate and in the Congress, okay? And there was some really heated debate going back and forth about the issue of slavery in the territories. And at that time, the U.S. didn't want any part of it. They didn't want to touch Texas with a 10-foot pole. Now, after the Mexican War, it's a little bit different because it gained so much territory. But for now, a few years before the Mexican War, heck no, not touching it. So, what did this mean? This meant that Texas was on its own. Broke, with no military, and sandwiched between enemies. Mexico to the south, that they had just whooped up on, and Mexico wanted revenge. They really did not like that. And then the Comanches to the north and the west. Mexican invasions were a constant threat. Mexico captured San Antonio, which was the capital of Texas back then. Now it's Austin. Twice in 1842 alone. Right? So even though Texas had, like, beat Mexico up, like, kind of punched them in the eye, it was only that. It was only a bruise. Right? Mexico was still fighting back. They were still raiding. They were still crossing the Rio Grande. Um, so Texas was like, God, what are we going to do, man? We can't fight all these people at once, right? We don't even have an army. We have no money. And on the western frontier, right, so Mexico was to the south. To the west, the Comanche were devastating the local settlements, just tearing them up. Neither enemy, so neither the Mexicans or the Comanches, accepted surrender. They didn't offer any peace deals, and they, didn't, and they did not accept surrender. The Mexican army would famously give no quarter. All Texans, Texas prisoners would be immediately executed. The Comanche didn't even have a word in their language for surrender. Didn't even exist. The word didn't even know what the word meant. In Plains warfare, if you were a Native American, you fought to the death. You fought to the death or you ran. And if <laughs> there was no getting captured, like, nah. You're fighting to the death. And that's why Native American, you know, Indian versus Indian conflict was so brutal and savage back then. Even the raids, because they didn't be really believe in taking prisoners or surrendering. They either took you and they sold you or they killed you. All right. In Plains warfare, surrender didn't exist. Therefore, the Texans had to fight. They didn't have a choice. Right. The problem was they didn't have any freaking money. 
Which, <laughs> you know, it's like all those rappers say, how are you going to go to war when you're broke? You know what I mean? Like, how is Texas going to fight two pretty powerful, really powerful enemies? I mean, one and both of them are really pissed off. Like, both of them. I mean, Mexico is pissed. Pissed. Because they had the nerve, the little brother had the nerve to punch the big brother in the, in the, in the family jewels. All right. But they're pissed. But they're, Texas knows they're going to get up eventually. Right. They're right now, right now, you know, they're holding their balls. They're on their knees. But they're going to get up once it wears off. And then the Comanches are mad because the Texans are like a freaking giant cactus thorn in their side. Right. They're always going out there, surveying the land, bringing their cattle out there, killing their bison, just generally interfering with their lifestyle. And they don't like that. Right. They don't like that. They're bringing disease. No good. So they got to go in the Comanche's mind. All right. All right. Was it 34 minutes? All right, y'all. We are going to go take a quick commercial break. Well, musical break. Technically, it's a commercial slash musical break, but just a quick break, guys. I don't want to drone on and on and on. God bless y'all. Stay safe. Hey. What's up, guys? They just decided to switch up the music on you. I don't know how many of you guys like that old school Western music. That song is by my boy Organic Dope. He does all the custom beats for our podcast. Thank you, Mr. Organic Dope, for the dope beats. Okay, we are back, man. Quick musical interlude. Um, We're talking about how Texas was kind of squashed in between Mexico to the south, the Comanche to the west and the Comanche to the north, right? They're different bands of Comanche. Texas was in they're they're in between a rock and a hard place, okay? So, although the Mexicans were a constant danger, the Comanches killed more Texans than the Mexicans ever did and ever would. All right. Texas was ill-equipped and unprepared to counter the Comanche violence. At first, right, in the beginning it seemed that Texans might suffer the same fate as the Spanish and the Mexicans before them, right? Anyone who fought the Comanche pretty much got bled dry, right? Death by a thousand raids. Raiding, pillaging, raping, enslaving, you know, running battles back and forth and back and forth. It was exhausting. The Comanches just wore you down. They they dominated warfare. You couldn't you couldn't outshoot them, you couldn't outride them, you couldn't outthink them. Because it was their land. So in the beginning, it was looking kind of dicey for Texas. Like, I don't know. I don't think Texas is going to make it. I mean, they have a lot of enemies around them. There are not that many Texans. And uh, they don't have any money. That was the problem. They don't have any money. They don't have any army. I mean, how the hell? How are they going to fight two enemies with no army and no money? Seems impossible, right? Wrong. Texans are Texans for a freaking reason. 
We're going to get into that in a second. All right, so what were the Comanche's main advantage over the Texan settlers, right? Well, for one, they had better weapons. Well, at first. They had better weapons in terms of the time period and the type of warfare they were fighting, okay? So when the Texans arrived from southern states, so just like anywhere else, right? Texans started somewhere else, right? It's not like people just, I mean, some people were naturally grown Texans, but their family, their ancestors had to come from somewhere, right? So a lot of the Texans, the later generations, their relatives came from southern states like Tennessee and Alabama. And the rifle they brought with them was called the Kentucky Rifle. That was their main weapon for hunting, self-defense, uh, war, whatever they needed to do. The Kentucky Rifle was it. And it's a beautiful weapon. It's, it's a classic. It just was not best suited for that type of lifestyle. Um, it was a fine piece of weaponry, but it was outdated, right? And like I just said, was not the best fit. The pros, right? The Kentucky rifle was heavy barreled, long, short stocked, and extremely accurate. It was an excellent hunting rifle. So the reason why it was accurate because it was heavy, it had length to it, okay? And it was balanced, it was well balanced if you were stationary, if you're on your feet. But remember, planes warfare was on horses, it was on a horse was conducted from horseback so that made it pretty ineffective cons from the saddle the rifle the rifle lost nearly every advantage it naturally had on the feet it was terrible it was not good for mountain combat at all there were a few problems one it took too too long to load it took forever to load ridiculous i'm not even going to go through the process the powder had to be measured and poured exactly the formula before they left right before you went out there you had to have all your powder measured exactly. Reloading was an intricate and complex process. It took at least a minute to reload, right? One minute to reload a gun was a death sentence when you're fighting Plains Indians. To fight effectively, to have any chance whatsoever, the whites had to dismount to fight Comanches. The rifle was just too heavy and too cumbersome to fight from the saddle with. It was just too, it wasn't balanced well from the saddle. It was balanced great for a hunting rifle when you're on the ground, when you're on your feet, but it wasn't made for that, all right? So that gave them an instant disadvantage, right? Also, right, the Texans didn't just have rifles, they also had pistols. However, these, man, these, you're talking about ancient relics. These pistols were gigantic. They were old-fashioned, single-shot single dueling weapons. Very heavy very awkward and it had one shot you couldn't really reload it I mean, it was just impossible to reload this meant that the texans had to dismount to fight a group of elite cavalry with only three shots each shot had to be made at very close quarters in order to be accurate then they had to be covered by their comrades to reload or they had to risk attempting to reload without the supporting fire, like on their own, which is just, you might as well just jump off a cliff because it takes too long to reload. You're going to get shot with 20 arrows before you even get your powder out. So what, what would the Indians do? This is an old Indian trick, right? What you would do was you would attack, you would faint. You would do a faint, like 
a, a faint charge, kind of like in boxing, when you, 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 you do a, a faint strike to kind of get a reaction. Indians would do the same thing. They would faint, right? They would charge and then re, uh, retreat. The white settlers would be scared, anxious, nervous. They would shoot and just fire all their weapons until they were empty. And it didn't take long to empty them. <laughs> then the Indians would charge in and kill them hand to hand, kill them with their lances, shoot them up with their bows. All right. It, it wasn't even fair, really. It was like an adult toying with a toddler when it came to, uh, you know, hand-to-hand weapon, uh, how, you know, horse-to-horse combat. Comanches had far more effective weapons for plains warfare. Weapons were battle-tested and verified through 100 years of constant warfare with the Spanish and Mexicans. Okay. So what did Comanches have? The Comanches were armed with a disc-shaped disc, D-I-S-K, disc shaped shield made of buffalo hide which at at certain ranges were pretty much bulletproof all right a 14 foot lance a sinew back bow a quiver of iron tipped arrows and a long steel knife which obviously we always know what those are used for close range fighting and taking scalps which was their war trophy scalping was a um <laughs> I remember People were like debating me. I put up a post about scalping. People were like, the Europeans brought scalping to America. I'm like, oh, really? Did they? Do you know that for a fact? Indians have been scalping people for a long time. All right, let's see. Where is my quote here? Oh, here we go. So, Colonel Richard Dodge, whose expedition made early contact with Comanches, believed them to be the finest cavalry in the world, superior to any mounted soldier in Europe or America. Right? So, think about that. I mean, these were some of the finest mounted warriors in the world, and they were fighting against Texans with no money, no bullets. You know, and they fought on horse. Uh, they fought on foot, right? Just insane. I, it, it's hard to believe that the Texans even lasted that long, but it's true. It lasted a pretty long time, um, and uh, obviously, it's. I would say it's due more to their stubbornness than anything else. They were stubborn mofo's, really, really stubborn mofo's. Um, they just didn't give up, and I and I think that's what made the Texas Rangers so legendary was that they took that natural Texas uh, Texas hard headedness and stubbornness, and they 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 used it to their advantage. Right, they were adaptable. So their greatest disadvantage, however, was in the horse and horsemanship. Over short distances, it was impossible for white horsemen to outdistance Comanche Mustangs. They just weren't built for it, right? Over long distances, Indian horses had the advantage of eating forage and grass as opposed to the grain that the white, that the white settlers, that the white soldiers had to feed their horses. So white soldiers, their horses, they were fed with grain, right? They, couldn't, they didn't eat grass. They couldn't find grass and food on their own. The Native American Mustangs, remember we talked about the Mustangs in previous podcasts? They were built for this. 
they could forage, they could find food under the snow on their own. They can go a long time without water. They could run long, long distances between water breaks. Okay. <laughs> so it wasn't like they were, <laughs> they needed water like my dog. Every like 10 minutes, he drinks her, her whole water bowl. They can go hours of hard riding without needing one sip of water. And that gave them a huge advantage over the Texans' big, clunky, kind of workhorses that they had, okay? So what was so cool about these Rangers? Well, the Texas solution to these Comanche advantages was the ranging companies. And guess what? They violated every single rule of classic military organization. There are no formal political organization around them, so there are no appointed officers. There was no guy in a suit in an office somewhere with a pen appointing officers. Nope. There was no formal organization. Officers and leaders arose naturally from within their ranks, and it was based solely on respect and merit. Rangers hunted for themselves. They, they brought their own weapons and supplies to the fight. The only thing that the government of Texas provided them was ammo. Sometimes it wasn't even paid. They were paid intermittently. Like, whenever Texas got a sudden influx of money, they would get paid. If Texas government didn't have any money, they wouldn't get paid. You would think, like, who the hell would freaking volunteer for something like that? Well, a lot of people did. But they had plenty of recruits. The frontier was freaking packed with young, reckless, single young men looking for adventure. And, you know, many, many young men died fighting during this time period. They died fighting, um, seeking adventure, seeking that, you know how young young kids are. They want to, <laughs> I don't understand. I'm, I'm, I think that's because I'm getting old now. I don't get it. But, <laughs> but these young kids do, man. All right, this is a quote from S.C. Gwen's Empire of the Summer Moon. Ranger, quote, Ranger John Kapperman estimated that about half of the Rangers were killed off every year and that the lives of those who went into the service were not considered good for more than a year or two. 140 young men in San Antonio in 1839, 100 of them were killed in various fights with Indians and Mexicans. my goodness so there were only what what do you say there were only 140 young men in San Antonio <laughs> out of the 140 young men in San Antonio 100 of them were killed that's like almost everyone that's a massive uh, percentage of the population of young men in San Antonio San Antonio back then only had like 2,000 people and that's can you imagine only having 2,000 people and, and losing 100 of them? That's a lot. That is a lot of freaking people. Um, a ton of them died fighting against Comanches. Uh, a, lot of a lot of men died in battles that were never recorded, never written down, because Rangers never... Most of the battles and the, and the skirmishes they fought weren't recorded. They didn't write diaries. Not many of them wrote diaries. They didn't write like dispatches, like the official military reports, like in the traditional army. That didn't exist either. And a lot of the fights were probably pretty one-sided in the beginning. 
because the Texans were trying to figure out how to fight. Uh, goodness, I mean they took they took a lot of losses, all right. But but they they had to learn from them. You know they had to learn from them. Um, and if they did fight right, they got really really lucky. It took a few years for the Rangers to learn how to survive hand to hand with the Comanche. All right, let's make this quote. All right, so. Yes, okay. One can imagine many such moments on the prairie. Every one of them lost to history in which gallant pursuing rangers became desperate fleeing rangers and in which no ravine was found and they all died quickly or they're unlucky enough not to die quickly were slowly tortured to death by fire and other means. They were learning about that too. Veteran Indian fighters were widely believed to save one bullet for themselves, though there is only one recorded instance of it in 1855. A U.S. infantry officer, Sam Cherry's horse, fell on him in a fight with the Comanche. Pinned, he calmly shot five times at his attackers. Then, surrounded by exulting Indians, he turned the gun to his temple for the last shot. So Plains Warfare was unforgiving and brutal. If you got captured, the Comanche were sure to torture you in the most brutal, hellacious ways possible. Just think of the most painful thing you can think of. You think pulling your toenails and your fingernails out is bad? I read, um, actually I was listening to um, Bill O'Reilly's book, Killing Crazy Horse. And there's a, a Apache chief named Conchise, Conchise, right? Cochise. And he used to torture his enemies. He's, I mean, it was natural. They said he used to cut a strip of skin from their heel, right? And sometimes they would even let the women work on you with knives. They would cut a strip loose of flesh from your heel or your foot, and they would rip it all the way up your body to your scalp. So one piece of flesh, they would rip it. They would tear it. Kind of like, you know how you tear like a piece of paper? You know what I mean? Like you're trying to tear a piece of paper in half. They would do it to your skin all the way up from your heel, up your leg, up your thigh, up your back, to your scalp. And if you screamed out in pain, they were disgusted by you because in Apache tradition, in Apache warrior culture, they were trained not to show any pain, any discomfort, any displeasure was seen as weakness. Right? Then he would hang people upside down by their ankles in a tree, let's say on a tree branch, make a really, really small fire, right? So they're hanging upside down, light a small fire underneath their head, and then and just wait until their the, the fire would slowly cook their brains into mush. All right. They would just slowly cook to death. I mean, these are these are horrors that we can't really imagine. So the Rangers were well aware of the risks. I mean, they knew exactly what they were getting into. And they always say the bullet from themselves. Right, all right. Oh, this is getting the good part now. All right. Rangers were a rough lot. They drank hard. They liked killing, fist fighting, knife fighting, and they executed anyone they deemed as criminals, okay? Despite participating in borderline criminal behavior themselves, right? So it was like 
these weren't traditional soldiers, right? They were asking for volunteers, okay? Many of them were, might have been running from the law, you know, depending on who you ask. Um, but it's funny, you, you give them power, right? These, these, these bandits, they were right above the level of bandits. Um, they wore whatever they want. We'll go into that in a second. They drank heavily. They got in a lot of fist fights, knife fights. They killed a lot of people on the frontier. Um, I'm sure some of whom they just murdered and just said that they were horse bandits or thieves or whatever, but they could execute anyone they wanted at any time because they had the authority from the governor of Texas to do so. Um, as time went by, as many of them died, almost by natural selection, they became even rougher, more brutal, and more aggressive. So if you think about it, if a band of really, really tough, rough guys in one of the most dangerous jobs in the world are out in the middle of nowhere, nowhere near civilization, and over these over the course of years, they start evolving, right? So as they die, as more of them get killed, the ones that survive are even are the hardest of the hard, the toughest of the tough, the most brutal of the most brutal. So by nature, by almost natural selection, Darwinism, survival of the fittest, the Rangers naturally became more crazy, more <laughs> aggressive, right? More determined because all the, all the ones that maybe had a little bit of softness in them, they wouldn't survive, right? Maybe they felt bad for a native and they paused for a second and they got shot and killed. Maybe they, you know, they, they couldn't, they were too cold one night and decided to stay near the fire and they got ambushed. These guys were, were, were eventually weeded out, right? So only the toughest remained. They looked apart the and they wore whatever they freaking pleased. I mean, it's like SF now. Anyone who served with uh, this Army Special Forces, whether it be Delta Force or Green Berets, no. SF, they pretty much wear whatever they want. So, okay, so this is going to be a quote, again, from SC Gwen's Empire of the Summer Moon. And I want to give you guys a really, really good visual of what these folks look like. And this is going to be the last part of the podcast. We're going on. 55 minutes, we're going to finish up soon, all right? Quote, the Rangers were a rough bunch. They drank hard. <laughs> they drank hard, and they liked killing and fist fighting and knife fighting and executing people they deemed criminals and, or enemies, okay? They looked the part, too. Though the idealized Ranger wore a, wet, a leather hat with his brim turned up, a, a kerchief, cotton shirt, and plain, plain britches, the reality was something else. They wore whatever pleased them. Sometimes that meant colorful Mexican wide-brimmed sombreros. Sometimes fur hats, bobtailed coats, or dirty Panamas. Often it meant head-to-toe buckskin or bits of and pieces of buffalo robes. Some went about naked to the waist, wearing the equivalent of Indian breechcloths over leggings. Many were large, physically imposing men with thick, brawny arms, long hair, and full beards. They had names like Bigfoot Wallace, <laughs> who was truly a, a huge and savage fighter. Alligator Davis, because he had wrestled uh, one to a draw on the Medina River. And Old Paint Caldwell, because his skin was so mottled, it looked like peeling paint. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So these guys were a group of freaking bad ASS outlaws, man. And guess who? Out of this crazy group of ruffians, 
Guess who their leader was? You will never guess. The skinniest, quietest, most boyish-faced young commander on the frontier who is a legend, who was the Rangers Ranger, who made uh, Chuck Norris look like a wimp. His name was, uh, what do you think his name was, guys? Can you remember? Hmm? John Coffee Hayes, a.k.a. Captain Jack, a.k.a. Captain Yak, as the Comanche called him. The Comanche feared and respected him, and he was the prototypical ranger. If there was a poster boy for what a ranger was, Captain Jack was it. No, he is not the same Captain Jack as Jack Daniels. That is not him. He is the real deal Holyfield, all right? He was calm under fire, cool and calculated, had no fear. He was probably one of the best military commanders America has ever produced in its history. And we're going to talk about him in our next episode. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to finish up with the Texas Rangers and the annihilation of the Comanche Empire. Thank you so much for joining me. I hope my podcasts are getting better for you guys. Remember to please rate, subscribe, and review if you have time. We appreciate all the support. Um, we're almost to a thousand downloads. Um, so thank you so much. It's such a blessing to do this. It's not easy to do. Um, but uh, I keep doing it because I love it. And because it's really rewarding. And I hope someone learns something. I don't care if two people listen. As long as you guys are learning and enjoying it just like I am. God bless you. Stay safe. Hope you have a great uh, rest of the week. And we'll be back. We'll be back really, really soon, guys. So don't go nowhere, all right? Ape. Join us on Friday for the conclusion of this series. Guess what? Guess who's next? You all already know. Big Shaka. Big Shaka Zulu in the Zulu Nation. Can't wait to get into that, guys. God bless y'all. Stay freaking safe out there. Stay vigilant. Train hard. Keep a positive attitude. Put God and your family first. Ape. Hey.